You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. It was just a wild time. But I remember that as it started, a ton of people started talking about washing your hands, which to me kind of struck me as odd because I was like, I I hope that we're all washing our hands right after we're using the restroom or feeling sick. Um, But hand washing wasn't always an obvious choice to prevent sickness or anything like that, right? In fact, actually back in the early 1800s, doctors didn't wash their hands between surgeries. So they would just jump from surgery to surgery to surgery without washing their hands in between. In fact, one Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis worked at a hospital that performed all sorts of different surgeries. At this particular hospital, they had two maternity wards. One was run by nurses and one was run by doctors. Um, The difference, however, in the two maternity wards was that the one run by doctors had a much higher death rate for the mothers than the one run by nurses. Um, And so uh, Mr. Simmelweiss came up with a theory that uh, sickness was getting onto the doctor's hands and then was then moving to the mother's bodies. Everyone else completely disagreed. They did not like the theory at all and no one listened to him. And the same practice continued on of not washing hands between surgeries. That changed, however, in the mid to late 1800s when a few important figures began to propose germ theory, which is our current modern understanding of sickness. Right? Uh, for instance, Louis Pasteur, a French microbiologist, proved the previous theories wrong and helped give evidence for germ theory, like concrete evidence for why germ theory would work. Soon after that, Joseph Lister, a British surgeon, got a hold of this evidence and presented it to the medical community, and soon after that, everyone was washing their hands. It's at the point now where if we found out that a doctor was not washing his hands before surgery, lawsuits would happen, right? Like we would be terrified uh, to go to that hospital. You see, it was the understanding of how germs work that changed the approach to the cleanliness in the medical field. The understanding changed the approach. And that's why I chose today's passage. I know that you guys are going through a sermon series on prayer. Um, And initially I thought about doing the Lord's Prayer, right? Like the ultimate prayer that we should be praying and that should be preached on and it should be taught. But I thought, before we even begin to get into the nitty-gritty of what it looks like to pray, that our understanding and approach to prayer should be shaped, right? It should be shaped by who Christ is. And so in this passage, we'll learn that it's our understanding of who Christ is and how he relates to us that shapes our approach to prayer. So I don't have it up on the screen, but our main idea today is this. Recognizing both Christ's godhood and humanity should cause us to pray confidently, knowing prayer is our means of endurance. I'll say that again. Recognizing both Christ's godhood and humanity should cause us to pray confidently, knowing prayer is our means of endurance. And so I know that you guys haven't been in Hebrews, so I thought that it might be helpful to figure out what has been going on in Hebrews so far. right, so there's been an overall train of thought which is that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone else. First, the letter opens with Jesus being greater than any spiritual being. The writer talks about angels, 
and makes an argument for why Jesus is greater than them. And then, right after that, he moves to Moses and argues that Jesus is better than Moses. Now, this is a big deal, right? I, I feel like us in the room, we know that Jesus is better than Moses, but those initial recipients of the letter probably would have been a little aghast to hear this, right? Moses is at the pinnacle of, Ju of the Jewish faith, right, of Jewish history. You had Abraham, Moses, and David were the Mount Rushmore for all of Israel, right? And so now you have him saying, Jesus is better than Moses. Particularly, the writer has been arguing that Jesus is a greater priest than Moses, which, again, seems kind of odd, because when I hear priest, I don't think about Moses, right? I think about his brother Aaron, right, the first official priest uh, in Israel's history. I might think about the Levites, I might think about Zechariah, right, who uh, was the dad of John the Baptist and was foretold of Jesus' coming. But the author particularly points to Moses. So I think it's worth asking, for the sake of us better interpreting our passage, why? All right, so first, what is a priest? Right, again, he refers to Jesus as a high priest, and so we need to answer the question, what is a priest? Well, at its core, a priest is a mediator between God and man. Um, so our best example of a mediator in our current times might be a lawyer. Um, so the lawyer acts as a representative of their client to the court and the court to their client and goes between them to advocate, right? Like in the movies, if someone uh, is, if a client stands up to speak to the judge themselves in the courtroom, it's a big no-no, right? They get in trouble. It's because the lawyer is supposed to speak on behalf of the client. They're the mediator between them. So a priest is a mediator between God and man. So right after Moses received the Ten Commandments, the official priesthood was established with Moses' brother Aaron. Aaron and his family were to wear particular clothes and perform certain rituals to maintain spiritual cleanliness before God. They were also told that they were to sacrifice animals on behalf of themselves and of the Israelite people. Because sin deserved death, these sacrifices were a means of sin not going unpunished, but spared the people their lives. These sacrifices were offered on behalf of the people to God, which highlights the role of the priest representing man to God. They also represented God to men by teaching the people of God, God's laws, and reminding them of the blessings of God. So again, the core of their role is to act as a mediator between God and man, right? Represent the people to God and God to the people. Now, particularly, there was a high priest who was in charge of the other priests. He had a few special things that only he could do but the most important one for us to know for this passage is his role on the Day of Atonement, which was a special celebration. As part of the ceremony, the high priest would enter into a room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, where he would experience the direct and most intense presence of God. If he had not sacrificed for his sin properly before entering it, he would drop dead in the presence of God. Um, there's a thought, although we're not sure if it's quite true, that they would actually tie a rope around his waist so that when he went in, if he were to drop dead, they could drag his body back out, All right? So that's what the high priest is. So how was Moses a high priest? Well, first, he talked to the people on behalf of God, right? So God to the people. Think about the burning bush. God tells them, this is what you need to do. These are my people, and I need you to go and free them. Go and tell them what I'm saying and go and free them. And he goes and does it. He, he goes and tells the people exactly what God has said, and he leads them out of Egypt, and then if you read the books of Le Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote, 
It's the law of God, right? So the God, which God gave him on Mount Sinai. So it's God to the people. So he represent, talks to the people on behalf of God. He also represents the people to God. Right? We read in Exodus 20, 19, that the people say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They didn't want to speak to God. They wanted Moses to speak to God on their behalf. Exodus 33, 11, a few chapters later, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This not only shows that he talked to God on behalf of the people, but it also shows that he's a high priest and that he entered into the presence of God. Both in this instance, where we see a pillar of cloud descend, representing God's presence, speaking to him face to face, we also see on Mount Sinai, where you get a whole picture of the mountain being on fire and shaking, symbolizing the presence of God. So Moses was able to enter into the presence of God, proving that he was fulfilling the role of the high priest. So he was a high priest, though he did not bear the official title. But he still fell short, which, is the, which the writer of Hebrews brings up. Moses was leading the people to the promised land, which represented rest for the people. The promised land was supposed to be a place where they could establish their physical kingdom and thus experience the rest that comes with it. Uh, you guys get that pillar as well, also meets in a school. And so setting up each Sunday morning can be tiring, right? Like it can be exhausting to uh, tear down, set up, and do it Sunday after Sunday. So you guys can relate. Having an established place means rest. But Moses didn't get them there. He did not get them to the promised land, and he did not get them to that rest. Because Moses didn't do exactly what God commanded him to do, he was not able to get to the promised land. The Israelites did get to the promised land after Moses died. After their arrival, they began to establish their kingdom. However, anyone who's read the Old Testament knows that any sort of rest that was achieved was short-lived. Sin, corruption, and outside forces wreck their plans. It goes to show that a physical kingdom on this earth was not the rest that God intended for them. In fact, the writer of Hebrews makes the argument that we, though thousands of years removed from the original Israelites who were striving for the promised land, are still striving towards that rest. We can relate to the Israelites in that we're still striving towards it. Right? Take a look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It reads, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Let us, therefore, that's us in this room as readers of this, of this uh, letter, let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author is writing to Christians, so the rest doesn't seem to be salvation itself, right? That wouldn't make sense if we're still striving towards it. It seems to signify being reunited with Jesus either through death or through his return. Thus, the author is encouraging the readers to press on, knowing that we are living this life, or that while we are living this life, we are still striving to one day be united with Jesus in true rest. So I know that was a lot of background, uh, but I think it'll help us to know, number one, how is Jesus a greater high priest than Moses? And number two, why does the author want us to know that? Right? So how is Jesus a greater high priest than Moses? Well, first, the writer of Hebrews zeroes in on Jesus' godhood. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God. What does it mean that Jesus passed through the heavens? Uh, there's a lot of theories out there of like he passed through three heavens, he passed through seven heavens, um, a lot of different things. The writer, though, isn't trying to say anything mysterious, and it doesn't have any sort of hidden meaning. Think back to Acts 1, where we get the scene of Jesus' ascension uh, out of this world. The disciples had a quick conversation with him, and then it reads, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. It says he was taken out of their sight, but where was he taken to? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, It says, after making purification for sins, right, dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He goes on to tell us in chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, that is Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And what does that throne room look like? Right? We get an idea of Mount Sinai. Exodus 19.18 says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. That's a picture of awe-inspiring intensity. Right? The whole mountain is on fire and is shaking. We get an even clearer picture in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, or the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two they covered his face, and with two they covered his feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of those who called. And the house is filled with smoke. Same exact picture, right? It's shaking and is smoking. Right? And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That place, the throne room of God, which struck deep fear into the heart of Isaiah and the people of Israel, where they said they don't want to go see God, is the place where Christ calls home now, right? Even Moses, who could sit with God and talk face to face, could only do so temporarily. Even when he went up on Mount Sinai to experience the presence of God, he asked to see God in his full glory, and God told him no, he would die if he saw him in his full glory. So Jesus is far greater than Moses because he calls that place home. He kicks his feet up there, if you will. Think about it like this. Imagine if you wanted to talk to the president of the United States face to face. You could try a couple different avenues. You could try writing him a letter, like the old-fashioned way. You could try reaching him out on, uh, to Twitter. Uh, you could try, if you really wanted to, to hop the fence and just run into the Oval Office yourself. It would not go well, right? Odds are, you're not getting a chance to meet with the president face-to-face. But if you're the president's son or daughter, then you can get a face-to-face meeting whenever you want for the most part. Right? You can essentially walk into the Oval Office while your dad is working on a new bill and ask him if he wants to play video games with you. Right? You can ask him if he can cook you dinner. That's the difference between Moses and Jesus. 
Humans couldn't just waltz into the throne room, right? But look at Isaiah. Uh, I mean, he, he immediately, as soon as he gets in there, it's, we get the picture of like him dropping to his feet and cowering in fear. Woe is me. But Jesus lives there. He calls the Oval Office home, right? But even more than that, he holds authority. He's not just calling it home. He's calling the shots, right? In Matthew 28, Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? He's in charge. So Jesus's power, glory, and authority are unlike anything that we've ever known and are far greater than Moses. Then, after stating, uh, after stating that, right, that he is far greater than Moses, he's passed through the heavens, the writer says, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Right? Our confession is that Jesus is God. We confess and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, which is God in the flesh sent down to pay for our sins. But death did not hold him. Three days after he was publicly executed, he came back to life, proving that he indeed is God and that death holds no power over him. We confess that Jesus is now reigning in heaven and that death, or sorry, that Jesus is now reigning in heaven in the throne room of the Father and will one day return back for his people. We confess that he is the only one who can truly reconcile us to God. We confess that he is the perfect high priest because he is God himself. And that makes it easy, right? Like, if all of that is true, and if God is currently living and ruling, and is our high priest, if Jesus is currently living and ruling and is our high priest, representing God to us, having taught us how to live according to God's standards, then holding fast to our confession seems like the only possible thing that we could do. Except it's not easy, right? Anyone in this room that's been a Christian for any sort of time knows that it's not just difficult sometimes to hold fast to our confession. It feels difficult most of the time to hold fast to our confession. Right? It can be hard to trust God, to trust what Jesus has said and has done when times get tough. When your kids are acting up, right? when you're tired, when it feels like life has beaten you up, when it feels like your life is heading nowhere, when it feels like you're confronted because of your faith when you're tempted to sin by all of these outside sources. It can, be hold, it can be hard to hold fast to our confession and to cling to what we know is true. If what we have said about Jesus so far is all that is true of him, if he's only all-powerful, then where does that leave us? Yes, he is powerful, and yes, all authority has been given to him. But if that's the case, and that's all that's true, probably means that he's a little upset with us, right? Like he's probably disappointed when we constantly let him down. He's probably angry that we loosen our grip and slip a little in our confession. That's the only conclusion that it seems that we can come to if Jesus is just all-powerful. But thankfully, there's more. Jesus is all-powerful, but he's not just that. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says he sympathizes with our weakness, right? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, meaning that he does sympathize with our weakness. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, points out that the word sympathize is made up of a compound Greek word. The root word means to suffer with a prefix meaning with. So he suffers 
with, right? So this isn't the sympathy associated with the stereotypical southern phrase, bless your heart, right? Which is really code for what you did is dumb and I think you're dumb, right? Like it's not actual sympathy, right? Jesus is not saying that he's sympathetic and then behind the scenes actually feeling disappointment or disgust. Instead, he's suffering with you, right? I want you to think about a time in your life when you were suffering, right? Take a moment to come up with a memory. Maybe the suffering was self-inflicted, right? You made a bad decision. You got caught in sin. Maybe the suffering was caused from the outside. A loved one got cancer. You were humiliated by someone else. It seems in those moments when we are suffering that we are farthest from God. It's in those moments that we tend to only focus on the power and authority of Jesus. We see him high up, seated far, far away. And yet, what this verse is telling us is that in those moments, Jesus is right there with us in a way that no one else can be. Sure, others can come around you and help to bear your burdens. There, are, there may be other uh, people around you that can feel the pain in a similar way to you. But those people that come to help bear your burdens eventually go home at night. The people that can feel the pain in a similar way, they don't feel it in the unique way that you're feeling it. But Jesus doesn't go home at night. And Jesus does understand your particular pain. Jesus is a constant by your side, knowing exactly how you feel and is currently feeling it with you. And that's the key. It's not just a head knowledge sympathy. He feels the pain and suffering that you feel. Right? And how is that? What well, says he's been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Remember, he was and is a living, breathing human being, right? He was a 13-year-old boy at one time with hormones all over the place, right? He was thrust into a culture that was notably God-opposed or had a warped view of God with the Roman and Jewish culture at the time. He was tested in his times of weakness, such as the, such as the moment when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He had times where others deserted him, and he had moments where all seemed lost around him. He has been there. Whatever temptation or whatever weakness you are feeling, he felt it all. And yet, unlike us, he did not give in to sin. You may see this as a negative, which I initially saw this as a negative, right? Like, how can he really truly experience what we experience if he never gave in to sin, right? But multiple authors point out that Jesus experienced temptation even worse than we do. We often fall to temptation, meaning that we don't experience it to its fullest capacity. Instead, Jesus endured temptation all the way to the end so that he experienced its fullness. C.S. Lewis likens it to a man who is walking against the wind in a storm. And two minutes in, he lies down so that he can't feel the wind, the wind going over him. The power is, is flowing over him, right? He doesn't, that man who lies down does not experience the intensity of the storm in the same way as a man who continues to walk face first into the headwind for the hours that the storm lasts, right? So Jesus is not some reserved, cold person who can't understand what we go through. Actually, he knows it better than anyone and knows it better than us. He went through his own sets of temptations and weaknesses and now experiences it with us as we go through it. 
He is not the high school track coach who tells you how to run, but then never sets foot to pavement himself. He's the pace setter in the marathon, running the race with you, experiencing the blisters, sweat, tears, and exhaustion that you feel. And because of that, Jesus is a better high priest than Moses. Not only is he God himself seated high on the throne, but he knows us better than any human priest could ever know us. He has experienced what we go through more than we could ever experience it. And as a human who has experienced what we experience to the uttermost, he's able to perfectly represent us to the Father. He knows us well and mediates for us to the Father, as Hebrews tells us later on. So, recognizing both Christ's Godhood and humanity should influence how we pray. Just like an understanding of germs changed the approach of hygiene in the medical field, our understanding of Christ's Godhood and humanity should change our approach to prayer. Remember, in the Old Testament, people couldn't just talk to God. Right? They had to go to the priest with their requests, who would go to God for them. Even then, only the high priest, one man, could walk into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus changes all of that. He is the perfect priest. He is full of power and might and has the ability to forgive sins. Our high priest is God himself, but he also knows exactly how we feel and think. He knows most deeply what it is to be like us and thus represents us to the Father better than any other priest could. He is God and man in perfect union, making him the perfect priest. And what should our response be to Jesus being the perfect priest? Before, before we think about that, think about this. If Jesus isn't human, right, he's only God, we should enter into the throne room timidly, right? Like Isaiah, falling on our face going, woe is me. And if Jesus isn't God but is only man, why enter the throne room at all? But how should we enter knowing that Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man? Well, the writer says that our response should be to waltz into the holy of holies ourselves. He tells us to walk up to the top of Mount Sinai as it's on fire and shaking. He tells us to enter into the throne room of God where all of these angels are singing holy, 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 and the place is shaking from their voices, right? He says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. No longer do we see the throne of God as our judgment and condemnation like Isaiah did, but instead we see it as a throne of grace. Instead of yelling, woe is me, we run to it yelling, you are what I need. And that's not just any approach, right? It's a confident approach. In fact, that word confident that's used there is used throughout the New Testament to mean the following. It can mean freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, openly, frankly, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance. Have you guys ever talked to someone like that? I often get in trouble for sharing way too much with people. My wife gets on me all the time about it. And so I know what it's like to say something that you feel like is being open and be reprimanded with it by other people. Not, not saying my wife reprimands me. I realize that sounds bad. Uh, but speaking openly, right? I mean, imagine talking to someone without fear of being judged or reprimanded, without fear that you'll look dumb or say something inappropriate, right? That's how we're to approach the throne of God. We get the privilege of walking in, not as timid subjects of a ruthless king, but as toddlers, walking in to tell our dad exactly how we feel and exactly how we think without really knowing any better. 
right? So the writer tells us how we should approach prayer, right? With a shameless confidence before the Father. But why should we pray in the first place? He said, it's because it's our mean of endurance. Take a look. He says, let us pray that we may receive mercy and find grace at time of need. It's our means of endurance. Remember, the writer of Hebrews wrote this because he wants his readers, that's me and that's you, to continue living the Christian life and to continue to hold fast to what they believe until they get to the next life. Right? And it's so easy to fall off. I mean, we like to point fingers at the Israelites who complained three days after they were freed from years and years and years of Egyptian slavery. Three days afterwards. But we're the exact same way. God can continue to bless us, and we continue to fall into sin, in temptation. We continue to complain and be bitter, right? We sh- we're striving for the rest that has been promised to us, and we do so in the same lousy manner that the Israelites did with Moses. Moses couldn't take them there, but Jesus can take us there. Jesus has all of the power to give us what we need and all of the experience to know exactly what it is that we need. As God, he's able to bless us, free us, guide us, and teach us. As a human, he's able to know our weaknesses, to sympathize with our pain, and to experience our suffering. He is the greatest high priest that we know, and only he can give to us what we need to make it to the end. Coming to him in prayer, stating exactly what you need, and knowing that he will provide it, is the only feasible way that we can make it to our rest. The life support system that you need is no longer on the other side of hidden fees, taxes, and forms to fill out. Instead, it's readily readily available right next to you for us to access at any and all times, whether kneeling down beside your bed, whether driving on the way home to work, in the middle of an argument with your spouse, or cooking dinner. We can step into the throne room of God. And for the Christian, this is good news, right? At the cross, Jesus' godhood and humanity met in a terrible perfection, right? As God, he was able to live the life we couldn't. And as man, he was able to take on the wrath of God on behalf of mankind, right? That mercy and grace that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here are initiated for us at the cross. At the cross, we were made righteous and we were freed from the bondage of sin that enslaved us much like the Israelites were freed from Egyptian slavery. And now we are on our own journey towards the promised land. Rest awaits us on the other side. As we continue to walk forward and as we continue to find grace and mercy in our perfect high priest, right? Christ didn't stay dead, but rose back to life and is living on the throne room with all authority and power given to him. We didn't free ourselves from bondage, And we can't get to rest by our own power. Instead, Jesus walks with us and gives us an open door into the Holy of Holies at all times. All along our walk, he invites us to Mount Sinai to experience him and to talk face to face with him. He didn't just free us. He continues to sustain us. He is the perfect priest, knowing exactly what we need and giving us what only God can give. My encouragement to you is to continue to come to him, knowing that the gospel means that he has saved and will continue to sustain you. Maybe you're in the room 
and talk about the throne room of God worries you. Right? You relate to Isaiah, or you relate to the Israelites who wanted Moses to go, but not themselves. Right? You don't want to come, to fit, come face to face with God. Or, maybe, you've tried getting through life on your own power, and you've come to realize that it just doesn't work. No matter how hard you try to be good or to be right, you just can't get yourself there. If that's you, Jesus is inviting you to come as well. Right? He wants you to come to his throne boldly, with confidence, shamelessly telling him everything about you. Right? He wants you to be open and frank about the parts of you that you don't want other people to know and that you don't like to share. Right? He wants you to come to him and give that up to him and to tell him that you need him. He wants you to believe that he is God and that he's currently reigning over all creation. He wants you to let him carry you, recognizing that you can't do it yourself. Right? He wants you, too, to come in boldly, declaring that he is worth all that you have and that you can't think of anything or anyone better than him. If that's you, I invite you to pray to him, boldly making this known to him. Jesus is the great high priest. As God, he can give us what we need, and as man, he knows just what we need. Because of that, each and every one of us in this room can come to him boldly through prayer, walking into the very presence of God, speaking shamelessly, knowing that he can give to us what no one else can. Only he and he alone can carry us to true rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that now, as we, uh, as we pray together, we are stepping into your throne room. We're able to experience your glory, your holiness now. We're able to be completely open and honest with you. Lord, you know us intimately. Lord, and you can give us what we need. And so we pray, Lord, um, that you would help us. Um, for some reason, uh, because of our sinful nature, um, it can be difficult for us to pray or even think about praying. So, Lord, I pray as we... Um, leave this room today, that you would help us to think about you as priests, both as God and man, and what that means for us. Lord, and that you would encourage us to pray. Lord, that after we think about that, that we would see no other, no other thing that we'd want to do more than to pray. Um, and so, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made, Lord, offering yourself up so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can now, instead of being uh, held in bondage and in slavery, are now moving towards that promised land, towards the rest that you have promised us. So Lord, please, we ask, continue to carry us and continue to help us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. This is the time when we take communion together. And I want to read uh, what Jesus said about that. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, 